1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good.
2: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back
1: with part two of our exploration of the fire extinguisher. Now, uh brief refresher on the last episode. We talked about firefighting techniques that would have been available to ancient peoples. We talked about firefighting in ancient Rome, uh, real estate hustles, crassus, uh, pumps, axes, ballistas. We talked about anti-fire grenades, those that had gunpowder elements and tried to stop fires through explosions, and those that were just basically glass light bulbs full of water or seawater or... uh, not seawater, salt water, uh, or or other very dangerous chemicals.
2: Yeah, and of course, in all of that, we really didn't get to something that would even really be recognizable uh, as as like a modern fire extinguisher. Uh, But that's where we're getting to in this episode. We are going to discuss where this uh, more or less modern fire extinguisher emerges. Right, because when you think of a modern fire extinguisher, what do you picture? It's some kind of tank,
1: right? You've got a tank with contents under pressure, and you operate some kind of lever or nozzle to spray the pressurized contents out onto a fire to put it out. Where where does that come in? I guess the closest we actually got in the last episode would have been uh, the pumps based on Tesibius of Alexandria's model, which uh, some of the historians we looked at last time or or engineers thought would not have been very effective.
2: Right, right. Yeah, it was pretty pretty much agreed that uh, they would have been more you know, I mean, maybe useful for very specific small fires that you mm. needed to put out, but certainly when a blaze got out of hand, it was out of hand, and that's when you have to bring in the siege equipment, right? Uh, but but maybe uh, not much more effective than a bucket, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, we're talking about the the handheld but powerful units that uh, I don't know about everybody else, but my my earliest exposure to was watching the original horror film The Blob, oh. uh, because they used the fire extinguishers on the Blob in order to like drive it back.
1: I don't remember that detail. I've seen The Blob, but I've forgotten about that. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I, I, I know
1: as a child a, a movie scene that really stuck in my memory – was in one of the bad James Bond movies. I think it was in Diamonds Are Forever that Sean Connery uses a fire extinguisher to murder a man. <laughs> I think he just kind of sprays him in the face
2: until he dies. Oh, man. Yeah, they are occasionally used as well. Usually you see them used as more of a bulk weapon, you know, just as a means of braining somebody. I think uh, there's some of that too. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's a general fight. It <laughs> ends with a lot of spraying. Uh, but we're not we're not going to be using fire extinguishers to kill people today. Uh, we're going to be talking talking about the origins of the portable pressurized fire extinguisher. And in order to do that, I discovered that we would have to end up looking at a very interesting fellow named George William Manby uh, who lived 1765 to 1854 who was an English inventor, uh, a naval officer, and a uh, – I sort of think of as a boreal obsessive, a man with the Arctic on the brain.
2: Mm. I think obsession is a qu- is a key thing to keep in mind with this character uh, just across the board because his life does seem to be just a series of obsessions after obsessions. Obsessions, sometimes very fruitful obsessions, other times not so much. Uh-huh. But but I guess that's like perhaps the sort of mind he had. Like once it had latched onto something, it was not going to let go until it had uh, you know until it had reached the end of the journey.
1: I really did not expect as interesting a biography as this to lie at the origins of the portable pressurized fire extinguisher. So I'm very excited. Uh, so I was looking at several sources about Manby's life. I couldn't find a book about him or anything that seemed to. Appropriate, uh, like you know, the ultimate authority on the subject. But the best thing I came across was a paper by a historian and scholar named William Barr, no relation at all to the current U.S. Attorney General William Barr. This William Barr is a research fellow in residence at the Arctic Institute of North America at the University of Calgary. He's sort of an Arctic researcher and historian. And this paper was written in 2001 for the journal Polar Record, which is apparently a publication of Cambridge University Press. It's called Harpoon Guns, the Lost Greenland Settlement and Penal Colonies, George Manby's (laughs) Arctic Obsessions. So Manby, as recounted by William Barr here, George William Manby was born on November 28, 1765. He was the son of a captain in the Welsh Fusiliers. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. But basically, these would be troops that used uh, uh, fusils, a type of musket. And he grew up at a family estate called Woodhall in Norfolk, East Anglia. So if you're trying to picture this, this is on the the east coast of England, sort of uh, up north of London and to the east. When George was 12, his father had him enrolled at a prep school for future artillery officers. I think he wanted George to follow in his military footsteps. He's like, "Okay, you know, you can command the guns. You'll be the artillery officer of tomorrow." And this uh prep school for artillery boys was housed at the Tower of London. Really? <laughs> which seems like a very strange place to hold a prep school for young boys. I sort of calls to mind a literal dungeon. Yes. Uh, yeah, well it calls to mind the fates of uh, like Edward V and his brother Richard. Mm-hmm. Apparently young George in artillery school absolutely hated math which is a surprising fact to learn about a young inventor. And he ultimately failed to pass the qualification test to be an officer in the Royal Artillery. So he's got this career path laid out for him, but it involves a lot of math because, you know, to be an artillery officer at the time, you didn't have a computer to do it. You had to calculate trajectories and know how to aim the guns and all that. It was very math heavy and he couldn't hack it.
2: It kind of had to be uh, uh, some version of an artillery mintat to, to handle the computations. So instead, he
1: became an officer in the less math-heavy branch of the armed forces, the Cambridgeshire Militia, where he ultimately became a captain, but – even here, he ran into trouble again because he could not keep up with the physical demands of the job because of some unspecified problems with his feet. And I don't know if this amounts to a real disease or a real disability or if it was just him complaining that his feet hurt. I can't suss out the source of this complaint. Mm, Yeah, because it could
2: have been any, if it were a legitimate ailment there, it could have been any number of ailments. Yeah. uh, Ranging from, you know, uh, gout to bone spurs to flat feet, etc. Uh-huh.
1: So he had to resign his militia post in 17 So, he did not qualify for artillery even though he'd been planning on it. Then he got this appointment but then couldn't hack the physical requirements and done there too. So, uh, George William Manby's first wife was named Jane Preston and she was the daughter of an Anglican rector who had been friends with George's father. George married her just before Christmas of seventeen ninety-three, again the same year he got forced out of his uh, his military service. Apparently they both had issues with money. Jane was described as spoilt and extremely extravagant, and George was, in Barr's words, totally unbusinesslike. And within within like five years, they were completely out of cash, deep in arrears, and to settle their debts, they had to sell Manby's family estate. So bye-bye, Woodhall, that's gone. And after this, Manby tried to make a living writing guidebooks. And just as a side note, I love outdated travel books. (laughs) They are so often full of weird lies and I'm sure these would be amazing to read. I think he was writing them mostly about his own region, about like, you know, guidebooks to places in East East Anglia to Mm. Clifton or whatever. Uh, And while he was doing that, meanwhile, Jane began an affair with an officer of the East India Company named Captain Pogson. And here things get crazy and I'll just have to read a quote from Barr. Quote, under circumstances that remain rather confused, Pogson shot Manby in the back of the head. One story is that they had fought a duel and that Manby had started running away. The wound, although serious, was not fatal, but the bullet had driven pieces of the felt hat Manby had been wearing deep into his skull. Well over a year later, Manby underwent a series of operations to remove the bullet and rotting pieces of felt. The operation was a success in that Manby survived, but damage was done to his brain and his behavior thereafter was somewhat peculiar.
2: Hmm. Now, this is interesting. We, we spoke uh, recently in an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about changes to the brain, injuries to the brain and their, their effect uh, on personality, but sometimes even on uh, one's ability to, to excel at certain tasks. So I, I wonder if we'd be going too far to, to to wonder about those possibilities here with Manby.
1: Yeah, obviously nothing here can be proved, but it does appear – it's at least interesting that yeah. he suffered traumatic brain injury. He got a bullet in, in the brain, survived it, and then after – this was before his inventing career began.
2: Right, yeah. The, I, I guess it's more realistic to, to state that he simply – went on to become uh, a noted inventor in spite of having been shot in the back of the head rather than right. because of it. But uh, but uh, anyway, the sidebar for a, you know, further discussion on uh, brain injuries and other episodes. But
1: he wasn't there yet. Uh, so after being shot in the head, having the, the bullet and the rotting felt removed, Manby's old friend Charles York who happened to have become Secretary of War at the time or secretary for war I think it was called uh, I'm not quite sure maybe out of pity or for whatever reason granted Manby a position that Barr calls a near sinecure as a barrack master of the Yarmouth barracks now a sinecure you know like a position where you don't really have to do much work you know you're kind of getting getting paid for not much mm-hmm. uh, so why a near sinecure why would it be this easy job to be barrack master of the Yarmouth Barracks, well, It seems this is because there were rarely any troops in the Yarmouth barracks, only occasionally during training or when they were being moved from one place to another. So a lot of the time he didn't have much to do. And during his time in this role, Manby was technically still married to Jane, but he apparently spent most of his attention, energy and time cultivating the the persona of a gentleman about town. He would go entertaining, he would go to social functions with naval officers, and he really liked to dress up and show off his cool clothes. He was the kind of person that at this time would have been derisively called a dandy. <laughs>
2: but for the most part, he's he's really not doing much at this point. Like he barely has, a, has any responsibilities. Uh-huh. He's just uh, having a good time around town. He's partying. Yeah. Yeah. Living the
1: party life. Uh, but then around the year 1807, something happened that changed Manby's life. And it was that he witnessed a shocking calamity. So off the coast of East Anglia, there are these long stretches of coastal bars, and a bar is essentially a shallow submerged bank or coast running parallel to the real bank or coast, right? So it can be made of sand or gravel or something that kind of comes up pretty close to the waterline but stays below it at a distance from the actual shore. And these, of course, can cause strange types of wave activity around them. Uh, They can pose a couple of hazards to ships. Ships can run aground on them and become stuck. But also, waves can be very high and very powerful in the bar zone, easily capsizing even larger vessels. And on one night in February 1807, during bad weather, several ships were all wrecked on the bar off the coast of Yarmouth, including a gun brig called the HMS Snipe. Now, according to some resources I was reading from the Norfolk Museums and Archaeology Service, these wrecks would have been approximately 60 yards or like 55 meters offshore. Imagine how maddeningly close that is. Uh, And so along with most of the citizens of the town, Manby spent that night on the beach trying to find or watching people try to find a way to rescue the people from the wreck who were drowning in the waves, like within clear sight. But there was no way to help them. I mean, imagine that. They're right there. If it was across ground, you could run to them in a matter of seconds. But because of the surf and the bars and the heavy wind, bad weather, you couldn't just go out to them. You couldn't go out in a rescue boat. So what can you do? Barr writes that uh, the next morning, quote, the beach at Yarmouth was littered with 144 corpses, 67 of which had come from the HMS Snipe. Uh, According to the Norfolk Museums, a total of 214 people died in the disaster. So it was a, a huge disaster. I mean, hundreds dead. But out of this tragedy, an idea began to form in Manby's head. So he thought, okay, if you could just get a strong rope out to the wreckage of the boat and anchor one end at the shore, secure the other end to the ship, you'd have a chance to get people in safely along the line. And in fact, this is what rescuers on the beach at Yarmouth had been trying in vain to do, to get a line out to the boat, but they couldn't do it. The distance was too far. Like, how would you get a line secured to the ship from the shore? But Manby thought back to his artillery school training. This is the subject in which he had been, uh, you know, like he'd kicked and screamed against the arc trajectory equations, he didn't like the math, Uh, he'd failed to qualify as an officer. But he still, of course, had the knowledge of what you basically do when you're working with artillery, and he thought if you could essentially load a rescue line into a mortar, you could fire it from the shore to the wreck, secure it at both ends, and then maybe use that line to carry a heavy rope from the shore to the wreck Mm. and bring the victims
2: onto the beach across that suspended rope or cable— and of course, anybody who's ever watched, uh, say, a bunch of Batman cartoons, this should sound rather familiar. This is exactly the sort of thing Batman is liable to do with his uh, uh, his little grappling hook uh, launcher device. Yeah,
1: the bat claw or the zip line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but of course, they didn't have whatever, you know, pneumatic magic Batman is using. They did have cannons. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can explore the idea of the life-saving cannon.
2: Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
2: All right, we're back. So, um, yeah, obviously, Canon technology was already, um, you know, uh, well-established. Uh, but generally for the, the purposes of uh, of bringing about death and destruction, right. not preventing
1: it. <laughs> right. So Manby has this idea for a life-saving gun to rescue people from shipwrecks trapped out on a bar uh, out from the shore. Now again, math was not Manby's strong suit, but due to his role at the Yarmouth Barracks, he fortunately had access to artillery where he could perform hands-on experimentation, and that's what he did. He tried attaching lines to cannon shot, and then firing these lines across the fields. And at first, this didn't work because the heat of the cannon shot inevitably burned through the rope material that he attached to it. But he discovered that if he attached the line to the shot with an intermediate length of braided leather, the leather was not burned away. It mm-hmm. would hold fast. And so basically he discovered, yeah, this invention would work. Uh, he gave a demonstration on it uh, on a beach near Lowestoft in August 1807 and he got a medal from the Suffolk Humane Society. So uh, this this rescue line mortar, sometimes known as the manby mortar, it achieved half of the goal, right? But just getting a line in place wasn't everything you needed. Like, what what are the crew supposed to do then? Like, shimmy across it cliffhanger style? I'm yeah, I was imagining that. So manby's next invention was basically the bottom half of this. Once you have a line secured, you need something to move back and forth underneath the line to get people to and from the the boat. And what he created was the other half of the equation here. Essentially, it was an unsinkable lifeboat. This would be a tiny vessel secured with casks on its sides for really high buoyancy. It would be super floaty. It would be really hard to sink. Uh, So you, what you would do is you'd fire a line from the mortar out to the wreck. You'd attach it to the wreck somehow. uh, I think naturally they said it would often wrap around the the rigging or, you know, Mm -hmm. if part of the mast was left, it could wrap around that. It would get tangled on the wreck. And then you would attach the unsinkable lifeboat to the line and send it back and forth along the line to bring crew members to shore. Then in February 1808, this would have been just about a year after the wreck of the HMS Snipe and the other boats uh, that that inspired this idea, uh, Manby got a chance to try his inventions out in the field because on the night of February 12th that year, there was a small ship called the Elizabeth that was again wrecked on the bar. And within half an hour, Manby had a rescue line shot out to the boat and the entire crew was successfully brought in on board Manby's unsinkable lifeboat along the line of life. Uh, And then Manby demonstrated the life-saving power of this invention on other occasions. Eventually, he began pairing the mortar with something known as a breeches buoy instead (laughs) of a lifeboat. So if you're trying to picture this – uh, the way you would be brought in on the line was in a kind of suspended, floaty diaper type thing. Uh, imagine a life preserver, you know, the ring-shaped ones. But in the middle of this life preserver, there is a huge pair of underwear. And yes. You put your legs yeah, I, th- I think it.
2: that's an accurate description.
1: And by all accounts, Manby's invention here was incredibly successful. It worked. It saved lives. And after these inventions, Manby became generally obsessed with the idea of creating a national life-saving service in Britain. Uh, He was eventually given a stipend by the British government to survey the eastern coast of England and identify the best places to have his life-saving mortar line installed. But we mentioned earlier that Manby would not be satisfied just Having invented one life-saving device, he kind of got stuck on the subject. Mm -hmm. It seemed like he just wanted to frantically turn his attention from one type of life-threatening scenario to another, asking, could there be an invention to stop people from dying here? Or how about here? And I I wish I had more insight into the psychology that brings that about. Like, what's going on with him? Like, how does he get— is, does he just become addicted to the idea of having invented a device for the good of humankind?
2: Yeah, yeah, you, it makes you wonder. I mean, part of it also could just be the success of it, right? I mean, I've mm. I've done like this is what I am capable of and I I actually saved lives. I I need, in a way he kind of perhaps becomes a kind of Batman, right? Uh-huh. But, where you know, he, he he he's saving people and and let's see where else I can I can work this magic. I wonder if it's especially
1: potent like having achieved that like he made the thing and it worked and it mm-hmm. saved people's lives like after having been pretty much a total screw-up for like the first half of his life. Yeah, and then nearly losing his life as well. Yeah, so then he turned to another one, and we will get to the fire extinguisher, but we're not there yet. Before he got to that, uh, another interesting uh, life-or-death scenario he explored was a problem that William Barr identifies as surprisingly common uh, as a mode of death in the early 1800s, and this was falling through thin ice on frozen lakes. Hmm. Uh, or I guess any frozen body of water, you know, or rivers, uh, uh, ponds and all that. People especially – he talks about in Scotland, people just going out on the ice, falling through and dying all the time. That strikes me as a rare and exotic form of death today but maybe
2: uh, – I don't know. Well, I mean part of that could, could be due to the region uh, in which we live where – frozen lakes are not that common. yeah. Um, but certainly in places where, where lakes are commonly frozen over, I mean, people venture out onto the ice for a number of reasons, for recreation, for ice fishing, uh, as a way to travel between point A and point B. Uh, uh, as I, I probably mentioned on the show before, I spent... Uh, Some of my childhood in Newfoundland, Canada, Mm -hmm. where uh, certainly like the the bays uh, freeze over and there were lots of stories I recall of, uh, you know, people, you know, driving on the ice and losing a car into it. You know, people either falling through the ice or like young people jumping from ice flow to ice flow and sometimes encountering mishaps. So I guess it basically comes down to the question, is there enough uh, frozen uh, lakes or bays, et cetera, uh, that are um, accessible to people? And are they there long enough for people to get out there and fall through it? Yeah. Uh, because people inevitably will. Uh, ice that seems solid at first will end up, uh, you know, uh, actually being less so. And then once it starts breaking, it can, be- can become very difficult to navigate.
1: Yeah. Uh, so Manby actually created a couple of different inventions for dealing with people who had fallen through ice one was uh, this this was interesting I'd never seen anything like this it was a kind of sectional ladder with buoys at the top so imagine a a ladder that floats on the water where the ice has broken Mm -hmm. and it also has hinged sections so it can or at least one version of it did so you know you could put it out along the ice flat and then a section would hinge down into the water so you could catch hold of that and climb up, yeah. uh, kind of forming like a pool ladder type thing. Yeah, I
2: could see that would be especially useful at that that uh, that region of, um, of of broken and breaking ice uh, that you would need to climb up over to get out of the the water. Yes, and of course, I mean the the obvious thing too here is that time is of the essence because right. you are in in freezing water.
1: Yes, and that's why it also had a grappling iron to snag the clothing of people who were unconscious or unable to climb out themselves. Uh, But what about where the ice is too thin for a floating ladder to work? Uh, There, Manby also invented a, quote, wicker sledge boat to be propelled by a spiked pole – so imagine it's a lightweight land-to-water rescue vehicle. So if you're needing to go over the ice, you can push it out over the ice like a sledge. And then if the ice breaks, if the ice is too thin, it will float and function as a boat.
2: Uh, yeah, again, again, a perfect, uh, a perfect invention to navigate that tr- that tricky uh, zone where you're not on like solid ice yet, and you're also not in open water.
1: Right. Uh, And Barr writes, quote, His inventions were amazingly successful. In one period of three days, they saved the lives of 16 people who had fallen through the ice on the lake at St. James Park while walking or skating. Yeah. And this brings us up to the 1810s. So uh, in the year 1814, Manby's first wife, Jane, who he was technically still married to at this time, I don't think they were – I don't think they had a functional marriage. But I think like a lot of people at the time probably like – Maybe may have considered divorce untenable uh, socially or something, mm-hmm. uh, so they were still technically married. Uh, and she passed away in 1814, and this apparently freed Manby to to say, "Oh, now I can get married again." This time, he married a woman named Sophia Gooch. <laughs> I got to say, my all-time favorite last name, not the first time I've encountered it because I've been to North Georgia and there's a bunch of Gooch stuff there, up there. there. are a lot of
2: Gooches up there? Yeah, huh. there
1: are Gooch highways. And, huh. uh okay. I don't know if Sophia is uh, related to the founder of the Gooch Freeway or Gooch, <laughs> the, the Gooch Bypass or whatever it's called. Uh, d- despite all of the the admirable qualities that, that Manby is now manifesting, uh, it does seem, at least uh, according to his letters and notes from the time, he doesn't seem like he was a great husband. It seems like he was uh sort of not really there like very neglectful of uh, right, and uh, that
2: was before he suffered the injury as well I mean yeah. there was already evidence of that and then the the, the uh the, the gunshot wound uh, to the back of his head uh like, like you said seemed to have made him even more difficult to be around
1: yeah uh he engaged in obsessive behavior with his inventions and mm-hmm. stuff uh it does not seem like he was a very attentive Family member, right? But to get to his next invention, here is where we finally get to the actual fire extinguisher—the first invention of the type of fire extinguisher we would recognize today. That you know, the pressurized tank. So, uh, Manby started thinking about another common way to die. I guess he's just sitting around <laughs> all day thinking about ways that people die, and this way was accidental fires. Barr writes that in uh, early 19th century Britain, quote, firefighting was almost entirely in the hands of large insurance companies who were interested solely in protecting the property of their clients. So... This would have been, you know, not quite as bad as Crassus in the Roman Republic, but still not the kind of firefighting ethos of public service that we've come to expect today. Right, right. This would be a, you know, a private for-profit uh, firefighting service, kind of an inverse Crassus, like instead of him buying your home for a pittance while it's on fire and then putting it out, you pay premiums to a company to protect the value of your home, and then they're liable if your home burns down, so they put it out if it catches on fire.
2: Interesting. It, it's hard to like really acquire. That to at least to like individual uh, experience with insurance. Would it be like if you had car insurance and the insurance company was like, we we really don't want to pay off on this policy. So we're going to have somebody ride with you at all times.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you ever had to argue with an insurance company and they didn't want to pay a claim, imagine that's happening while your house is on fire. <laughs> Now, also, as we discussed in the last episode, the bigger a fire gets, the harder it is to put out, right? Like a lot of times you'd, you'd have urban fires where even as late as the 19th century, your your main recourse was just to create fire breaks. Like you'd have to pull down houses and stuff to mm-hmm. prevent the fire from spreading. Uh, so those crucial early seconds and minutes, what what Manby would come to call incipient fires— Those can be your window into containing a fire that would otherwise get out of control. Speed is everything. So Manby proposed a better solution. He was like, you know, we should have full-time public fire patrols to wander the cities, putting out fires as early as possible with the right kind of technology to allow them to do that.
2: And this, of course, is a very Roman solution. This brings to mind uh, um, you know, our last episode.
1: Yeah, but now the uh, the idea is that these fire patrols would be equipped with technology that the vigilance of ancient Rome didn't have. And now again, of course, you'd run into difficulties here. Like how do you get enough – fire snuffing potential into a small enough package that it's fully portable uh again you know imagine a firefighter's wandering the street they hear somebody screaming that a fire's broken out in their kitchen and then they have to start running buckets from a pump or a water source to, you know, one at a time. Or they could try to raise the alarm to form a bucket line, get more people involved, but this takes time to come together. And by the time it happens, the fire might be 20 times bigger. So what you need is an invention to increase the density and portability of fire extinguishing power, like a lot of fire extinguishing power in a small package that you can move around. And it was in this spirit that Manby invented a portable fire extinguisher. Uh, If you want to read about it at length, I found a book that Manby wrote with illustrations. It was published in 1838. Uh, He describes his inventions in detail. It has one of those like titles that's impossibly long. It just begins an address to the British public if you want to look it up and read it. Uh, But Manby's invention consisted of a large tank containing a pressurized solution of fire-suppressant chemicals, or as he calls them, anti-phlogistic fluid. <laughs> nice. I think he's buying into the now discredited uh, phlogiston theory. mm <laughs> Now, in reality, uh, this antiflogistic fluid was primarily potassium carbonate, or as he calls it, pearl ash, and this would be dissolved in water. Uh, the tank originally had a capacity of either three or four gallons. I've seen both uh, – some sources like Britannica say three, Bar says four. But uh, either way, this would be a cylindrical tank of pressurized solution that could be wheeled around the city on a hand cart and then whenever you wanted to spray it onto a fire you would aim the nozzle and release the valve and the release of pressurized air would cause a spray of the mixture out in a powerful jet. And Barr writes that Manby's invention was tremendously useful and effective but that Manby did not take out a patent on it. Instead, Manby sort of expected to be rewarded for his inventions with public recognition by the crown, probably in the form of a knighthood. But it did not work out for a uh, strangely seedy and petty reason – so I'm just going to read from Barr here explaining why he did not get his knighthood. Quote, in 1806, his brother Thomas had been named as one of Princess Caroline's lovers at the commission of inquiry convened by the government into her morals, otherwise known as the, quote, delicate investigation. Oh, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> When Thomas vehemently denied any philandering with the princess, despite an alleged bribe of 40,000 pounds offered by the prince regent, later King George IV, he and by association his brother George incurred the prince regent's eternal enmity. Thus, a knighthood for Manby was never
2: in the cards. (sighs) Oh man. So yeah, that that time it wasn't even Manby himself that uh, managed to um, mess things up. It was his brother Thomas. Right. I mean, allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly, yes. Yeah. Um uh, Thomas by the way was uh, was a career military man uh-huh. um uh, who would later die of uh, of an opium overdose some uh, 20 years prior to uh, to Manby's own death.
1: This was the age of of opium in England. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have been not long before this, that Erasmus Darwin is hanging, uh, handing out uh, <laughs> handing out opium prescriptions to whoever needs it, oh, yes. has a problem. But yeah, the, there's a kind of like horrible, ironic tragedy here. Like it, it combines a couple of different themes we've seen from invention history, both noble and otherwise. Like so Manby declines to pursue intellectual property rights on life-saving inventions, uh, giving these inventions as a kind of free gift for the public good. And there are a number of inventors we've discussed who went this route, right? Uh, Wilhelm Röntgen and the x-ray, right? You know, he said, I'm not going to try to make money off this. You know, this is a gift to the world. It will save lives. Uh, we saw the same with Fleming and penicillin, Salk and the polio vaccine. You know, it, it happens a decent amount.
2: Yeah, and of course, the part of it is that inevitably other people, if you do this, other people will make money off of it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there are going to be fire extinguishing companies that, uh, that that uh, that come online there were x-ray uh, companies that came online and profited from this right
1: but you you renounce your uh, you know you renounce any claim to say no, you owe me a cut of that right. Um, but also, it it expects this kind of gift back from the state, right? The gift in recognition of his achievements for the for national pride or for the people. Uh, think of the pension that Louis Daguerre got from the French government for his gift of the daguerreotype to the French people. But yeah, apparently for some reasons related to family grudges, this did not work out for Manby. Mm. Um, so, in addition to the manby mortar, he actually also worked on whaling harpoons.
2: yeah, I was reading a little bit about this in uh, william barr 's article as well uh He had some innovations in mind for the whaling harpoon which which makes sense because the uh, the the manby mortar had a lot in common with uh, with whaling harpoon technology, sure. But, uh, but then apparently on an expedition in which he was going to try it out, uh, it, it sounds like he managed to tick off the crew enough that they sabotaged his invention.
1: Yes. Uh, so he began getting really interested in whaling harpoons around the year 1819. Uh, He had ideas for hand harpoons and for harpoon guns. And then it was in the year 1821 that Manby went on an Arctic expedition to Greenland with the Captain William Scoresby, Jr. Uh, Again, it was mostly with the intention to try his new inventions in the field, Uh, though it sounds like a miserable experience bar Mm -hmm. in in several places quotes from – uh, Manby's journals and one of the quotes he actually begins his article with it and I just had to share this so Manby's writing about uh, what it's like to sleep on this boat going to the Arctic he says in the night I felt the inconvenience of a tight ship for the wind blowing hard agitated the bilge water an oleaginous matter left last voyage to the production of a gas of so extremely pungent a nature as to render respiration difficult and almost to produce suffocation oh. So the bilge water, I I wonder what this oleaginous material is. I mean, I guess it's just like whatever kind of junk on the boat drains down into the bilge uh, traps. It just comes back up as a foul odor and gas. uh Uh. Uh, Yeah, and the crew, they were not fans of Manby. They did not cooperate with him. They were not helpful. However, this voyage had a profound effect on Manby anyway. And uh, afterwards, he— It it seems like he spent the rest of his life totally preoccupied with weird ideas about Greenland.
2: Yeah, again, coming back to just the obsessive nature of uh, of his personality. And um, yeah, so there were – it was kind of threefold, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, so one of his uh, obsessions was that, uh, uh, that, that England needs to uh, acquire at least a, a large portion of Greenland. Right. And then that they need to use that uh, acquired land as a penal colony. They must. Yes. But then this other area that was quite interesting – uh, it was uh, it was Manby's obsession with the idea of a lost Norse settlement in Greenland and the possibility of not only finding the remnants of such a settlement but finding the living descendants of, uh, of uh, like modern Norsemen of a sort that's, that are still living in Greenland somewhere.
1: So he's basically like the, you know somewhere in Greenland there's a city of the descendants of the Vikings yeah. and they're still there and nobody knows. Yeah and we
2: need to set out on an expedition to find it. Um, so I was reading a, a bit about this in uh, in Barr's uh, article. Uh, so first of all, here here's the the main deal, the, like the the facts about uh, Greenland occupation. Uh, Greenland knew human travelers and settlers as far back as um, 2500 BCE. It was known to early paleo-eskimo cultures. Uh, Inuit Greenlanders, whose uh, descendants still live there today, they arrived roughly um, 1200 CE. Uh, But the land was unknown, really, to Europeans till roughly the 10th century, uh, when it is recorded to have been spotted by uh, Gunbjorn Olsson. And then in the year 982, Eric the Red was exiled there for a number of years for a murder. And uh, so while he's there, he explores a bit, and then when he comes back, he says, "Let's get some settlers together. Let's go to Greenland and set up some settlements. Let's let's make some money. Let's uh, let's settle some land, uh, you know, Viking style." And uh, and so that's what happened. Norse settlements in Greenland lasted for some 450 to 500 years, so from roughly 985 CE to somewhere between 1450 and the year 1500. Mm-hmm. Now, various factors seem to have contributed to the ultimate demise of Norse influence there. And, uh, you know, a lot has been been written about this. So some of the potential reasons uh, in, include uh, climate change, environmental damage, conflict with Inuit tribes, uh, the opening of regions elsewhere due to plague depopulation that were more attractive than Greenland. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also thought that the trade in walrus ivory might have played a role here. Uh, you might have had, a, say, an influx of ivory from other markets that affected the value of the ivory that they could acquire there. Mm-hmm. And then also po- possibly playing into this would have been the overhunting of Greenland walruses, which uh, which then would have made it even harder to hold on to these settlements.
1: OK. So the evidence we have today indicates that whatever uh, descendants of Norse settlers had been on, on Greenland had probably been gone for over three hundred years by the time Manby gets interested in this. Right. So what what gets Manby and Scoresby and these people going on the idea of a, a lost Norse settlement?
2: Well Barr writes that Manby's obsession is probably due to a misunderstanding. Um, he writes, quote, The concept of the lost colony or lost settlement arose from a misunderstanding. The old Norse settlement in Greenland had consisted of two main areas, known as Osterbeged, or East Settlement, and Wisterbeged, uh, or West Settlement. Uh, The former uh, was the area of the present settlement of Quakertok, and the later lay farther to the northwest in the area of the present capital, uh, Nook. Both settlements thus lay on the southwest coast of Greenland, west of Cap-Farvel, Sorsby and Manby assumed that the East Settlement lay on the southeast coast of Greenland, that is, northeast of Cap Farvel, an area that had not been examined for centuries, and hence they had hopes the descendants of the North settlers might still survive there. So there was geographic confusion. Geographic confusion combined with like just less knowledge of that area uh-huh. you know because because that's the way it is today with a lot of things right we don't we don't really know this wilderness uh, all that well maybe there's a sasquatch there okay. you know, maybe there is a lost civilization there uh-huh. you know maybe I, there
1: are Vikings yeah,
2: yeah. and it could this plays into other you know ideas of lost settlements and lost uh, civilizations and, and you know throughout throughout the world uh so yeah, he became rather obsessed with this notion. Of course, there's actually, as it turns out, like, this there is there was no law settlement. There they were is, wrong. They were wrong. There's no evidence to to support this idea. That certainly that I've come across.
1: But that didn't. It, despite not finding that civilization, it didn't prevent him from pursuing his other ideas, again, being that like he was obsessed with the idea that Britain had to claim an area of East Greenland uh, north of the area claimed by Denmark and say, OK, this is England now. And also that it had to be a penal colony. <laughs> You've got to make it a penal colony.
2: Yeah. Uh, it, it seems like it's kind of implied that it's it's sort of like the, the journey there was uh, – the, his his previous journeys were so miserable that he kind of like had it out for the region. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, again, he's, he was his obsession uh, was such that uh, in, in cases where he was on to something, mm-hmm. like he was able to really follow through and develop some life-saving technologies. But in these cases, there was just no meat there, but he still chewed the heck out of it for a number of years.
1: Yeah, and ultimately, Manby died in his home uh, in Yarmouth in 1854. What a strange arc of a life. So he goes from kind of like uh, artillery school dropout, you know, kind of a screw-up, a dandy to very successful inventor, yeah. creating very influential in- inventions that save people's lives to crank
2: obsessed with a
1: <laughs> with a disproven theory about Greenland. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, kind of a, a conspiracy theorist, really, in a, in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no telling what what he would be into uh, now, what ideas he would be obsessed with, uh, given our own current uh, you know, climate regarding sort of outsider theories and whatnot. Uh, But, yeah, it's certainly an interesting life and certainly more more of an interesting life than one would uh, might have suspected from the fire extinguisher inventor. All right. On that note, let's take one more break. But when we come back, we'll talk about uh, talk a little bit about fire extinguishers in use today.
0: Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: All right, we're back. So to talk about the kinds of fire extinguishers you will encounter today, um, I think many or most of them could, could be considered basically derivative of Manby's original design. There's still some kind of tank with contents under pressure inside, and those contents are sprayed out of a nozzle to put out a fire. And I guess there there are like three main types that we can focus on. So there are, of course, still extinguishers that are basically water tanks with spray nozzles. Uh, These, of course, are mostly useful for small fires with fuel sources like wood or cloth. They would not be recommended for use on fires with a liquid fuel, so like kitchen fires, grease fires, or on electrical fires for all the reasons you might imagine. You know, you wouldn't want to spray a bunch of water on an electrical fire. Uh, some fire extinguishers of today contain carbon dioxide in its compressed liquid form, which on operation is sprayed out as a kind of CO2 gas snow to smother the fire and deprive it of oxygen. And carbon dioxide is heavier than air, so it will tend to settle down on the fuel source and provide uh, provide a layer of barrier between the fuel and the oxygen that it needs. But another common solution that's interesting uh, is in, in pressurized fire extinguishers, to use a dry chemical suppressant, which is a tank that sprays a type of powder or foam mixture based on sodium bicarbonate, also known as baking soda. Now, under heat, baking soda quickly breaks down and releases CO2 gas, Mm -hmm. which again helps deprive the fire of oxygen and kind of smothers it. It becomes like a gas blanket.
2: I'm really unsure what they were using on the blob, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm suspecting that the blob was uh, – the use of fire extinguishers in the blob was, was perhaps based on the, the rough idea that the blob does not like cold and fire extinguishers are cold. Mm. And that's what they're doing. They're like freezing the blob with fire extinguishers. Huh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so
1: those are like the main types you'll I think you'll find today. You might find some other. Maybe they were spraying them with old CTC fire extinguishers <laughs> that had uh, what's a carbon tetrachloride. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the poisonous stuff we talked about in the last episode. So it could be they're just like spraying it within, you know like a blob aside. Yeah,
2: or it was just cheap, right? You just in terms of special effects, like you just grab some fire extinguishers and use them, and uh, you know it looks like you're doing stuff to the blob. It's a Impressive yeah. looking.
1: I don't know. Maybe the blob needs to breathe air, and by spraying it with fire extinguishers, you're surrounding it with carbon dioxide, making it hard for it to
2: breathe. Well, yeah. yeah that would make sense. Now, speaking of the blob, uh, an entity that uh, in science fiction comes from space, uh, I was reading about actual uh, fire extinguishers in space. Mm. And, and I found this rather interesting. I kept coming across articles. Uh, really sort of uh, revolving around uh, the year 2013. Uh, And and that seems to be because at that time, there were two different sorts of extinguishers that you would find on the International Space Station. Hmm there was uh, there were russian water foam extinguishers and then the u and those were used in the russian sections and then in the us sections you had carbon dioxide extinguishers and there was an effort at the time by nasa to develop a fine water mist portable fire extinguisher for use uh, on board the iss in those american sections hmm. and this was because there were you know obvious problems with using co2 extinguishers uh, on board uh, the ISS so for starters it would create an unsafe breathing environment exasperated by the ISS's uh, uh, emergency breathing equipment's inability to filter CO2 hmm. but uh, then there was another interesting fact I ran across and that's that given the, given the unique qualities of low G fire uh, gas based extinguishers they, they work less well in space than they do on earth so they end up directing air and oxygen to the fire providing additional fuel well, that's interesting because yeah,
1: if you've seen fire in in microgravity environments, it tends to be circular, right? Yeah, it doesn't rise up, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at some really weird uh, like thermal imaging, uh, like altered color thermal imaging of like what, um, like low G or zero G fire consists of, and it's it's crazy. It's 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 is, a different. Is animal. it basically spherical? Like a- yeah, but with this weird um, like there's almost a sense of a. Um yeah, yeah, spherical but with this this uh the it, it reminded me of like a um An image of a of a young seed beginning to grow a plant. Mm. Uh, It it was uh, it's it's quite interesting. Wow! Uh, But But yeah,
1: does the fire kind of gather around the fuel source the way that like when you wring out a wet towel in in microgravity, the liquid just kind of pools around the fuel source?
2: Maybe so. I feel like just from my brief research on it um, earlier, this is something we could probably do an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on, like the the nature of fire in outer space, like what Mm. we know, what we suspect. Uh, because it, it is quite interesting and it is a danger I mean it has uh, has, has po- posed a danger in the past uh, I think there there was a major fire on the uh, what was it the, the Russian Mir uh, mm-hmm. space station at one point so it's it, you know, it's very much on, on the on the minds of uh, of, of uh, individuals that are working on these stations and planning for the safety of these stations and uh, so in fact in 2016 after a total 18 years of development uh, the water mist Alternative was finally rolled out on the ISS, so uh, apparently you will you will find that system on board today.
1: This has been such a strange journey. Yeah, oh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what a
1: long, strange trip it's been, Robert.
2: Yeah, it's been uh, you know, all the way from just stomping fire with your feet, um, pouring water on it, to going into space and again using a, a mist spray of water <laughs> against the fire. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, this has, been, this has been a fun one. Uh, and uh, certainly I feel like with just fire technology and fire prevention technology, we could easily keep going. We could choose some other angle of, of fire-based technology and we'll inevitably come back to some version of fire-based technology because you really cannot have technology as we, we know it with, without the flame. I mean, it, is play, it plays such a central role in the, in, in the technological evolution of our species. We carry the fire and the fire carries us. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to go ahead and leave it there. Uh, But as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear your recommendations. What sorts of inventions, what sorts of technologies would you like to hear us uh, explore on this show? Uh, If you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That will shoot you over uh, to the iHeart listing for this show. But you can find this show wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. You know, we don't care as long as you uh, subscribe, you rate, and you review. Those are the things you can do to help the show uh, continue uh, to put out content. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson.
1: If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.
0: Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel? It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot.